the fact that Oscar Robinson didn't play that, right? He understood early on that basketball was not a game, but it was a business, Mm -hmm. right? And I think what you see is him being able to get other players to see that. And one of the ways he did that was one of the first years when he was head of the uh, NBA PA is when he had his own holdout in 1965, And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living, and we will win the day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and the just recently released Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M University, and the History of Black College Football. Lou, welcome back, brother. How you been? What it do, baby? First of all, first of all, how I've been, your book, your book is out. Like, I didn't think that was coming to august and september and rumor has it you can purchase it on amazon right now is that true that is true that is true it is uh thank you know shout out to the university of north carolina press who was able to get it done and uh in in advance 50 days ahead of football season that's amazing yeah yeah and they do good work i see your little promo video uh so so that's big time you guys like unc press is now like the suge knight of like publishers so Look, anybody who wants who wants a promo <laughs> video, come over to UNC Press. Um, but in all seriousness, people go out there and get that book. I had a chance to go over it a number of times. Um, and I'm looking on Amazon right now. You're you're gonna we need to bump Derek up in the what categories does Amazon have you in? They have you in African American history, southern US biographies and football biographies. Um, so we need to we need to sell some books to get you in the, that that top. <laughs> that top 100 i'm trying i'm trying to get in the top t- i'm trying to get in the top 10 let's get in the top 10 you know yes. Hey, yes. aim high aim high right let's, let's get in the top 10 in southern biographies <laughs> <laughs> yes sir so now that we're back after i don't know it's been a week 10 days or so since we were last on we were talking about with uh uh jermaine about world cup soccer let's just let's follow up for our listeners everybody knows by now what has happened in the outcome that I was correct in picking the United States. And I want to shout out Megan Rapino, who won the golden boot, the golden ball, which is the most valuable player of the tournament. And at the same time, she shut up a number of haters on both sides of the Atlantic ocean, uh, having, uh, leading the United States, uh, in defeating both France and England, as well as the Netherlands. So shout out to to Megan Rapinoe in particular, but also the entire women's national team. You watch some games, Lou? Did I watch some games? Uh, yeah, I watched the games. Of course, I watched the games. Uh, and the beauty thing, the beauty about soccer is that you, look, they tell you when it starts. It starts on that time. You go forty five minutes, and and unfortunately with VAR, it's like fifty minutes, and then you get a little break, and then you're back at it. So uh, unlike basketball, like you know. I love watching me some basketball, uh, men and women, but, but you know, the time it, it takes a while. Soccer is like boom, boom, and, and you're done. So, so it is a, a beautiful game and, and Rapino was big time and, and make sure you guys, if you haven't uh, check out the white allies, um, app, right. Where we talk, I, we briefly mentioned Rapino, but it was more Kyle Crover and the history of, of white allies. And certainly, um, she stands in, in that legacy for everything she's been doing, um, publicly you know supporting cap and then 
supporting others since since uh, 2016. And I want to say on the show right now, right, uh, from the black athlete and us, I want to say two things. One is uh, that the women's national team deserves to be paid as much or more than the men's team. They have quality. They have produced quality. They've won world championships, four of them. And they are the most entertaining and exciting and most profitable uh, part of the United States Soccer Federation. So let's pay them what they're worth. We, it's 2019. Let's do that. Uh, two, I do want to, you mentioned, briefly mentioned Crystal Dunn. I wanted to give her a particular uh, shout out because as a person who uh, she moved from forward, this is like inside soccer, but she moved from forward to defense uh, and she played left back with, uh, you know, which is a huge challenge. Uh, for a person to move from one set of offense to, to stopping the other team's best players. And she was phenomenal um, uh, at times, especially against uh, France and England. She played uh, stellar, and, and as the tournament went along, she was a much, much a really, really good defender. So I want to give her a particular shout-out, play a lot of minutes uh, in the World Cup. So what we're gonna do today, we're gonna get into free agency though. This is our big this is our episode. This is our free agency episode. Um, because um, you know, for me, you said you're a big NBA fan, but for me, man, the NBA free agency has now means that the NBA season is a 12 month season, right? It is you know, it used to be uh, you know, the NBA really didn't start to Christmas Day and it went until June. Uh, but now the opening season is is the you know in the weeks before Christmas the game is super exciting, uh, and now with this constant free agency, uh, we are now witnessing a twelve month season for the NBA, and so we now have uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie on the on the Brooklyn Nets, and Kawhi and Paul George have relocated to Los Angeles for the Clippers. LeBron has uh, secured a trade for AD, Anthony Davis, out in Lakerland. Uh, and the big one, uh, James Harden and Russell Westbrook have been reunited uh, in Houston, and it feels so good. So all this is happening in free agency since the last time we had our podcast, and it's amazing, and I love it. Right, right. And I, and I often say, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Lumore12. Uh, I love the NBA offseason, and the NBA offseason loves me back. Uh, because it's nothing but great drama, right? And and you forgot to mention Jimmy Butler is in, in Miami and, and Al steady Al Horford is in Philly. Uh so, so you have all those dynamics. Mike Conley is is in Utah. Um so there's there's like there's a whole like you said, it's twelve months and, and I'm I'm ready to rock. And and what we're doing here though with the black athlete is not just kinda um talking about what what happened these these past few weeks. Um, but really to put in some historical context, right? And 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 I think to under be able to understand free agency and specifically NBA free agency, right? You 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 have to talk about the black athlete and you have to talk about Oscar Robertson, right? So today what we want to do in this episode is is really make this about Oscar Robinson and and other black athletes trying to push for freedom within uh the NBA. Um, so, so with that, um, let's, let's talk about Oscar. So if you guys don't know, free agency exists, uh, because players, and if uh, most people know it in, in baseball, it's Kurt flood, right. For fighting against what is called uh, the reserve clause. So in baseball, it was, um, Kurt flood and basketball. The movement was led by Oscar Robinson. Um, and so Derek, what is the reserve clause? Oh, it's like a, it's like a pop quiz. The reserve clause uh, is a contractual, 
got him. No, a contractual agreement that allows for the team to own the rights of the player uh, for the entirety of their lifetime, right? So you own the rights if, if for instance, if this is 1950 and Lou Moore uh, plays for uh, my team, I own his rights when he's 20. I own his rights when he's 50, right? And so there's a certain sense that that ability to control the player's uh, livelihood and when he plays um, is a cornerstone to uh, the labor side of professional sports. Uh, and this was a cornerstone, as you've mentioned before, and baseball had made this kind of the norm uh, to stop player movement uh, beginning really in the 19th century. Uh, but when we see professional professional basketball really kind of take off um, after World War II, this, of course, is part of the normal kind of operating procedures uh, among owners. Did I pass? Mm, no, no, you got it. You got it. And and like, like I tell my class, like, um, and, and this, this is getting cornier and cornier as the years go on, but to think of it as Sandlot time, right? In the movie Sandlot, it says forever. Um, when I first started doing that, like 10 years ago, I got a lot of laughs, but now I'm like, <laughs> what, what is, what is Sandlot? Um, but that's this, right. You're right. Right. This is idea that, that you sign a player and you own them forever. Right. And, and what that does is is does it does two things, right? It all it like everything's in the favor of the owners, but 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 it restricts how much money a player can earn, right? Um, in the sense that they can't negotiate mm-hmm. any with any other team, right? So if this is baseball, right, and and the Yankees sign you and you sign your first contract with the Yankees, even before the draft, and we can get into the draft and and how drafts in all sports should be illegal, but. If they they sign you, then then that's it, right? Um, that you mm-hmm. are theirs for life, right? And the, and and so it restricts your mobility, but it also restricts your earning power because you can't pit another team against another team. So let's say you have like a five year deal before the reserve clause is ended, right? Before you get free agency, at the end of five years or one year or two year or how many years you you sign you're only negotiating with that team, right? You can't take yourself to to the Giants. Mm-hmm. You can't take yourself to the Dodgers. You're negotiating with that team. And so they can offer you anything they want, right? And so what players had to do to, to get away from that when there are one league, you know, when there are one, when there's one league out there, right, is uh, threatened to retire, right? And, and the owners would have mm-hmm. to call, call their bluffs. And, and that happened a lot. And it happened, um, since we're talking basketball, Oscar Robinson, it happened a lot in, in the NBA with some of these top stars. Right? So like Will, early on in his career, when Will knew he was the big draw and he wanted to make $100,000 and uh, the Warriors Philadelphia wasn't paying him that much, he, he just retired. Like, look, I'm done. I'm retired as a young man. And then all of a sudden, boom, here comes that contract, right? Um, so <laughs> they're like, oh, right, right. Oh, you are, you are the big star. But, but what I think what's important here is that a couple things happen. This is before Oscar, and we'll we'll get into the history of that. Is that for black players, they they start to know their worth. Like early on, the NBA, you know, the NBA it starts out all white, and then by the mid '60s, it, it's 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 half black, and now we're at like seventy, what eighty percent. Um, but the, these black players early on started to know their worth, mm-hmm. but they also, what they had, what a Wilt had, what an Oscar had, because he, he did the same thing is they didn't have another league until you get to ABA. What they had was the Harlem Globetrotters, right? 
Um, so these black players could say, well, I'll quit. What are you going to do? I'll go play with the Globetrotters. And make more money than most. And, and that's what gets lost in this discussion. The Globetrotters, um, you know, as a, you know, as a traveling outfit uh, was not preferable. Most of those guys do not want to be on the road 300 days a year. Uh, but what the Globetrotters did offer is significant amount of money uh, in this kind of barnstorming uh, mechanism. And so this is what gave um, players like Wilt and Oscar Robinson and a whole bunch of folks from the 50s and uh, 60s uh, a certain level of bargaining power against the teams that they were able to use to really make themselves some of the highest paid players in early NBA basketball. Right. And, and to be clear for our listeners, one of the few players who didn't use the Globetrotters was, um, was Bill Russell. And he actually winds up when Russell comes out of San Francisco, uh, to, to the Boston Celtics, he meets with, uh, the Harlem Globetrotters, but he, you know, Russell sees himself. He's a very proud black man at this time. And, and he noticed right off the bat that these white owners really didn't care about him. Um, and, 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 and didn't think he understood the business of it. And, and so when the, Globetrotters are just kind of like negotiating his contract without even paying attention to him. He says, I'm out. You know, I don't have to deal with this. And he winds up going to the Celtics and takes less money than he would have got for the Globetrotters, uh, you know, because he had pride. Right. But in the end, he he winds up being one of the highest paid players very quickly in the, in the early 60s um, just by renegotiating his contracts with the Celtics. Well, that and they won like a title almost every year, too. So. <laughs> that didn't help. That didn't hurt, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you get that. You get that. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't hurt, and you get that extra bonus play too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the athletes who who uh, we talked about here is that we want to talk about, right? Because you can't talk about NBA free agency uh, without talking about Oscar Robertson. Um, is is obviously it's going to be Oscar Robertson, and, and Oscar has this kind of very unique position, and and we were talking about this before, like in prep that. When we talk reserve clause and we talk free agency in sports, we often the fallback is Kurt Flood, and and he should be right because but you know what he risked and and essentially his his career. I mean, he played a little bit after the lawsuit, but I mean, essentially threw away his whole career for this. Um, but that's you know because we're such a baseball heavy uh, nation, right? Mm-hmm. And and so the fallback is Kurt Flood, but Oscar, as you mentioned, is just as interesting a case um and and so what we want to do is highlight him and oscar one of the things we got to know about oscar is that he was the head of the nba uh pa so the same thing that that uh chris paul's head of now oscar's ahead was the head of in between 65 and 75 so 1965 1975 and when he was in charge that salary jumped up from eighteen thousand dollars right to average a salary of $18,000 to $110,000, right? And part of that is the fact that Oscar Robinson didn't play that, right? He understood early on that basketball was not a game, but it was a business, Mm -hmm. right? And I think what you see is him being able to get other players to see that. And one of the ways he did that was one of the first years when he was head of the – NBA PA is when he had his own holdout in 1965. Um, as the story goes, Oscar wanted a hundred thousand a year, and a hundred thousand a year would have put him equal to Will and would have put him equal to mm-hmm. Bill Russell, 
right? And and he won not only that, he won a hundred thousand, and he wanted to see the books. He's telling the owners, like, look, I want to be able to see these receipts <laughs> to make sure that I'm getting my cut, and. And to get that, he threatened to to quit basketball and and to start his own kind of tour or to go to the Globetrotters. And at first, you know, the owners, since he's <clears throat> there's a reserve clause, the owners called his bluff. Now you're not going anywhere. And then as it came, you know, <clears throat> stuff tried to matriculate out that Oscar could actually start his own kind of one man, not one man show, but his own kind of tour. The owners were able, you know, the owners had to come to the table, right? But but I'm telling this story because Oscar, when when there's a lot of pushback and one of the owners called him greedy, he says uh, he he turned to the owner and says, "If I'm greedy, I learn from you." <laughs> right? This is his mentality looking at basketball as a business. I'm getting mine, you're getting yours, I'm getting mine, and I think that sets the tone for what comes next in 1970. Yeah, 1970, you know, uh, the NBA, one of the reasons that the salaries increased in that decade is that there's a creation of the AB, right? The ABA, right? Which is a competing league and much like NFL, right? So we, I think we may have mentioned this on the earlier pod that uh, in the early 1960s, the AFL in 1960, they threatened the NFL. Uh, and there was this back and forth and there was this huge, um, um, spending spree for talent players moving back and forth from each league etc cetera, etc cetera, that drove up salaries and made it costly for both pro uh both uh franchises in both leagues and so they ultimately realized that this was going to be self-defeating and the two leagues merged uh in the mid to late 70s i think like 67 68 uh and so the aba comes in roughly at the same time as the afl nfl merger and the ABA's really kind of plan is, in many ways, is to challenge the NBA, right? To come up with this league with the hopes of being incorporated. That's kind of the deal that they're trying to do almost immediately. But the see, the same problem arises, right? We need to find players. We need to have talent. And they are very aggressive in getting players. And so, you know, for us who are basketball fans, remembering the old ABA with the, the red, white, and blue basketball, the three-point shot, they are all about entertainment. But they also have a tremendous amount of talent, most notably Dr. J, right? Dr. J is the star of the ABA uh, in those days. And what happens is very quickly, the NBA owners come together and say, hey, we should vote for a merger in 1970. And as soon as this discussion comes out of the ownership group of the NBA, uh, uh, Oscar Robinson, um, part of the w, the NBA PA, actually files a lawsuit, an antitrust lawsuit against the NBA. And that puts a stop to any discussion of merger uh, of a merger for six years. And so here he is taking the kind of lessons that he learned in his own negotiation in 1965 and really making them part of the uh, broader league plan uh, to protect players. And I think that's really the fascinating part, right? Which is, you know, much like Kurt Flood, you see this lawsuit, but what we also have is whereas Kurt Flood was an all-star player, uh, Oscar Robinson knows he's in the top five players in the NBA, right? So it's a little bit in terms of stature. So there's all these great discussions. If you want to read his biography, his autobiography, he talks about preparing for the lawsuit and preparing for the season at the same time, right? That he's trying to do all these things, trying to convince players that the union uh, and, and supporting the union is essential for everybody's well-being in the league. Right, right. And, and I think that's a great point that you bring up because this um, 
this goes to court uh, in front of Congress, right, in 1971, in September 1971. So you're a couple weeks away from, you know, training camp to get ready for your season. And here this guy is, is fighting for their rights, right? And one of the things, you know, that he has some of the transcripts in his um, autobiography. I believe it's the, the Oscar Robinson autobiography, The Big O. And he's talking about, you know, what, you know, he gives a transcript. And one of the things that stands out to me is when he says, um, right here, it's, if you guys don't have it, or if you ever do have, it, it's going to be on page 278. Um, he goes on to talk about how this isn't really for him. This is for everybody else. Right. So he says, we, the so-called superstars really do not need to fight the merger. I have a long-term contract. I will probably retire at the end of my contract. I do not stand to benefit financially by having the leagues continue to compete for my services, but I do not stand, but I do stand to benefit by seeing that the 400 some odd ball players in professional basketball have an opportunity to be treated as other people in American life, that they can truly negotiate for their services. They can escape from the ghettos or leave the suburbs knowing full well that they had the right to earn an income commensurate with their skills and commensurate with the risk involved in the shortness of their careers. Right. And he says this in front of Congress, right. Essentially saying that mm -hmm. this is, and he'll go on to say that this is about America. This is about freedom, right? This idea that as a citizen of America, right, you have the right part of your basic rights is, is the right to negotiate a contract for yourself, right? The right of mobility and what sports does is restricted. Now in the past courts have ruled that look, like we could have these kind of these, uh, you know, antitrust exemptions at, at that time, the M, uh, major league baseball and NFL had antitrust exemptions and the NBA was trying to get one with the merger. They say you can have that because, you know, these players are compensated for that. But what Oscar is trying to say is that that's not freedom, right? And 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 I think he's right, right? Because only in sports is is it's the only place that we do mm -hmm. that, right? That idea that like you are drafted by a team, and, and to be clear, I think drafts should be completely eliminated. Uh, but you're drafted by a team, you're stuck with this team, and and usually fans, right? Which is crazy. Take the side of billionaires, and they see these kind of players like, oh, you get a couple million dollars. And Oscar is like clearly trying to fight that, right? He's trying to tell them this is a business. Uh, this is this is who we are as an American nation, right? And and in America, we should be able to do these things. What's also interesting about the case is one of the only members he says in the in the in Congress, I believe, uh, specifically, it's in the Senate. Uh, that really uh, rejected the idea that the NBA and ABA should be able to merge and have this kind of anti-Sherman waiver, uh, waiver was a, a, a Republican senator North, from North Carolina, Sam Irvin. And what's interesting about him is like he's a strict constitutionist to the point that, you know, whenever they say strict constitutionist, they also mean that uh, they're anti-civil rights at that time. Right. Um, and so you have this anti-civil rights uh, Republican <laughs> right. senator actually taking the side right of these of these players in in this hearing strictly on this idea of like kind of this basic concept of american freedom right um so that that case happened so he opened it in 70 they will see congress congress is 71 and they finally two years after he retires 
they finally win their battle in 1976. And and it, what it does is, and I think this is an important piece for us to think about the free agency that is that's happened that happened this summer, but happens every summer, right? Is that really what by winning this case, he basically says that when your contract is up, you have the ability to shop your services to other teams. Uh, and I think that really is the cornerstone to what opens up and unleashes. Uh, these astronomical sums, right? And even when they win the case, it's also, we should note too, right? Even though they win the case, they don't have, uh, this is the first step to free agency, right? They don't have uh, un, uh, unmitigated free right. agency, right? Uh, when they win in 1976, basically the the team that owns your original contract still has the first right uh, to match any offer outside of offer, right? So you can't just like, I'm leaving the Knicks to go to uh, the 76ers um, without the Knicks having the opportunity to match uh, that salary, right? So there's a, still a first step. And so we have, you know, it takes into the to the 80s uh, and into the 90s until we get to kind of the modern version. But Oscar Robinson, by tackling and basically undermining the reserve clause in NBA basketball, it really opens the door for us to move uh, and to see this kind of growth uh, in athletic movement. And I think the key, and I think you said this earlier, that I want to emphasize too, is that you know, Oscar always sees his position as one of labor, right? And even in the modern sense, you talk about how fans always side with billionaires, right? Because we don't see them as workers, right? Like, you know, you see yourself as a worker at your job, but they don't see NBA guys um, as as professional athletes as workers. So they should be happy uh, and grateful that they get to play a game, right? Like, you know, even when they say they play a kid's game and they earn all these astronomical sums, and what we don't see is how much work and effort and the toll on their bodies, their backs, their knees, um, et cetera, that they they face, uh, the kind of personal sacrifices that come with that as well. Right, right, right. And 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 I think, oh, how do we say this? How do we say this? I think part of this too is is that you can't. Sometimes I don't think you can divorce this from when you talk about the NBA that that we're primarily talking about black athletes, right? Like I think in general it's fair to say we see this as all athletes, right? That you're mm-hmm. just playing a game. But I think specifically when you're talking about the NBA is that there's this kind of this this idea that th- these are black athletes, right? And I think we tend to not me and you, but we in general Americans in general when we see black athletes tend to think that they only got one option right in life right that is that is uh the ghetto or or the mm-hmm. basketball court or or you better have a wicked jump shot or you're slinging crack rock or whatever Dave Chappelle and Biggie Smalls are saying right um and I think that's how they that that lens that they view that in and so them being kind of selfish and then also taking the side of the owners is is part of that um that they don't see these guys as as workers and 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 laborers and they don't see these guys truly deserving whatever Chris Paul makes right and 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 that's why the narrative about Chris Paul is is always the contract mm-hmm. the narrative about Russell Westbrook uh within the last week right is is his contracts like come on man this guy averaged triple mm-hmm. doubles i believe back to back to back season he is the reason why you're staying up at 11 o'clock at night at midnight if you're on the east coast you know what i mean like like and to act like he doesn't deserve 30 million because yeah. he may or may not like his knees might blow out in three years is, is is kind of ridiculous right like this is what he's worth um and i think 
uh, people, fans have a very hard time with that. And again, historically, they've had a hard time with that just in general, but in the NBA specifically, especially since it's starting to see be seen as a very black league. Once you get to the seventies and eighties, it is like, I don't think you could uh, remove race from that, that observation. Oh, absolutely not. No. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. When it comes to, you know, uh, the racial component of the NBA, it is definitely a, a moment in which um, these black athletes are not only the, the stars of the league, but they're also commanding a tremendous amount of sums. And this is also, I think, one of the things that one of the reasons we took on this episode um, is that in, in the press, right, there's been this whole discussion, do the NBA stars have too much power uh, in determining where they go? And I'm like, no, right? They they don't have enough power, right? Mm-hmm. Like LeBron's underpaid, right? Like there's a point with Michael Jordan was underpaid, right? Like these are guys who single-handedly made the league what it was um a cohort of players and those players were underpaid right like there's no way you can tell me that you know whatever they're paying Giannis is not enough in Milwaukee <laughs> you know like they should offer him everything right 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 and <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. emphasize in Milwaukee right, right right and 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 at the back of you know Milwaukee's scared because they they lost Kareem. Right, right like exactly. Is, you know, they came in and they threw they threw everything they had. I don't even think I was reading this to I was randomly, you know how I go through those newspapers. Um, what was I going through? Uh Michigan Chronicle, just going through some stuff. And it's like when Kareem signed, and it's like, does Milwaukee even have enough money to pay him? <laughs> At that moment, it's like, ah, we'll figure it out, right? And then eventually he leaves. And then I think they're gonna do the same thing with Giannis, like this kid is going to eventually the bit the, you know, the bright lights are going to attract him like being in New York or something. Um, just, just to, sorry, I, I did cut you off, but one of the things that kind of brings this home for me is the player's power is with what happened with the Brooklyn Nets and, and KD. It's like, they didn't even take a, uh, a meeting with KD. KD is like, yeah, I'll sign there. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Uh, what's going on here. But, but what you see is that, we talked about this, the history of whether you're talking about a will of Bill Russell, Oscar Robinson, or even KD today or LeBron uh, and his, his player option contracts. It's, it's really these athletes in the NBA. It's, it's, let's be clear, these black athletes, these superstars trying to get some power. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a lot, a lot of power now because look, they realize, look, I could sign these, these, these player option contracts. And so Kawhi, coming in to the Clippers. Everyone thought he was going to do four. They just naturally thought he was doing four years, 140 or whatever that money is. I mean, he left probably 80 million on the table somehow. And he's taking a two-year deal to to, to do two things from what I understand. One, two-year deal with the player option to align it with Paul George, right? Mm -hmm. So that keeps the multi-billionaire owner of the Clippers pretty honest. And I think he does a pretty fair job, uh, Balmer um, and Doc do a fair job of bringing people in, but it keeps them honest because look, when LeBron wasn't doing that in Cleveland, they were, you know, they're drafting guys like Luke Jackson, right. And, and LeBron's best player is yeah. <laughs> right. And so boom, I'm a lead. And the other thing that, that Kawhi did is that he aligned his contract up with, with um, when he becomes like, he, he has 10 right. years in see, see, and, and in academics, we get tenure in the NBA, they get 10 <laughs> years and then they get to make a lot more money. We get tenure and then we get that little bump. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, but, but you know that, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Here's your pen. Um, 
but but you know those are those power moves that we're talking about that um these these black athletes are making and it and it's changing the game right and 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 that's what makes i think the NBA healthy. What to me personally, what would make it healthier is I'm gonna say this again: you you get rid of that draft, but also you get rid of the salary cap. Right, the salary cap is still in so much in favor of the owners, and um, you know because the owners, if you didn't have a salary cap, you know these guys would be, have to throw out so much money to to LeBron and and to KD, but they'd also throw out money to like just players that we haven't even heard of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just 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 to do it. Um, and on that, I got to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah, go here. ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I'm going to put you on the spot. Like we keep bringing up this term owner and, and what's one of these kind of controversial hot takes is, is the term owner. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, and then, and this is like right on the spot, by the way, for our listeners. So, so Derek and I have never talked about this. Oh, this is a tricky question. Well, here's what I think. I do think that there is, um, I think the, the term owner is, I mean, it's loaded with all kinds of connotations, right? But I also think that it's not as accurate in today's, um, you know, professional sports world because really what you're talking about are majority shareholders, right? Like all these teams, with the exception of a couple of them, are owned by these huge, you know, like there's a person who owns 60% of the shares, but, you know, Jay-Z at one point owned like a fraction of a share, Right. <laughs> You know, and so these are majority shareholders. Right? Usher too. I think Usher had something. <laughs> so yeah. I think what you're talking about is like, are these majority shareholders? And I think if you talk about them as majority shareholders, really, then you're thinking about them. It, it does illuminate the kind of corporate um, backing that are uh, that control these teams, right? And I think that that's an important kind of shift from the days when you really did just have one owner, like one person who owned all, who was responsible for making sure everybody got paid. Um, and it was a personal property, right? Like it's a very different uh, kind of entity. Um, and I do think that, yeah. you know, given the way that we are talking about the way language and connotation and racial connotations, um, is it a time to revisit some of that? But I also think it's, you know, we're also talking about an era in which, you know, a lot, almost a lot, a lot of these teams are, you know, corporate owned where people own, you know, the, the ownership, the hundred percent is owned by, you know, anywhere between three and seven entities uh, with someone being the majority shareholder. Right. 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 Good. Good. I was saying that was good. I was, yeah, on, that was yeah. on the spot. Um, but for me, hot take. Yeah. Nah, nah, that's, that's yeah. Hot take that was clean, yeah. Similar thing to me, but to me too is like you can't divorce that history from that, like you were saying, like, like you know, this idea that there was a singular owner and this idea that there was a reserve clause too, right? And 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 one of the things about the reserve clause is that people, you know, whether you're fighting in you know, white players in the 1880s, 1890s, and baseball fighting it, or you're a Kurt Flood, right? Mm -hmm. You are linking that to, to slavery, right? And and it's to be clear, it is not slavery, but that fight has always been like that, right? It's always seen that weird thing where somebody owns your contract for forever. Um, but to me, what also jumps out about this conversation about the term owners is the the people who fight so hard just to keep it, right? Like, it's like, come on, this is not like, it's not a big deal. Just let it go. But, but it gets kind of wrapped up into this larger conversation about PC culture, right? Which is also a... a Let's say a PC name, a, a PC culture is really a PC way of of certain folks not 
uh, wanting to change, right? And so they they find these little battles to get all huffy puffy about, and and for a few weeks, the, you know, the term owner in the NBA was one of those, right? And and it always mm-hmm. struck me like, why why is this the fight that you want to make? That you want to keep this term owner? Like, what what do you have? You know, what stakes do you have in this? Um, so that's what always got me, right? Like, like on you know, this is like you're fighting to keep this term. But there's also this notion of reserve clause, and we're 50 years out from Kurt Flood fighting this, right? We are 49 years out from Oscar Robinson fighting this. Um, so I think it's time you could just change, change it, right? Change, change the terms, and then uh, you know, watch these players start to take more control of the game too. And I think that's what's lovely about the NBA is that these players are taking control of the game. Um, and hopefully eventually you'll see that from like the WNBA because they have a fight too. And I think we have to address that eventually on the podcast, but they have a fight coming up. And and, mm-hmm. and I hope that that they're they're willing to to fight and get what they deserve, right? Because it's not fair that they have to go overseas and play uh, just to make a decent living. So that's what's that's going to be interesting coming up in terms of basketball and labor fights. Is what's going to happen with the WNBA? Yeah, that's yeah, that's going to be the next big fight. Um, but with that, man, we're like uh, 37, 38 minutes in, brother. So let's uh, wrap it up here, man. It's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.